morning we are reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1:18 and 2:5 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miracle sign and Greek look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you in the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. This is God's word. Thanks, Eric. Well, last week, if you were here, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We looked at 10 to 17, where Paul was talking about the visions and the great leveling field that the cross is. And we saw that Paul, for Paul, when he is looking at, uh, at what, what it means to live life before God, he has a very Christocentric perspective. That is, he's centered on Christ and also cruciform, that is, taking the shape of the cross. So in the passage that Eric just read for us, we see, for example, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I resolved 
to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there's an example. He's Christocentric. I resolved to know Christ only and him crucified, cruciform, taking the shape of the cross. And so when Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, three years after he'd spent one and a half years with them, he sees these uh, people who are trying to mature in Christ, but they're still immature, especially dividing over factions. He has to start in order to get to them and say, you need to get beyond this and grow into maturity. We have to start at the cross. We have to begin right there. Because for him, it's all about Christ and what he did on the cross and how that impacts and influences not only how the Corinthian church lived their lives, but how we do thousands of years after as well. So today, as we look at this passage, we see the cross is where God's wisdom and power is on full display. And I know today the cross is something that's kind of fashionable. I love football, and I watched quite a bit, uh, some high school and some college football yesterday as well. And I don't know how many of you noticed that a lot of people will take the, the eye black and put, like, crosses on their, uh, there, too. It looks cool. I mean, it's, it's just kind of cool. And people who, who like bling, I'm not a blingy sort of individual, but you see a lot of times people wearing crosses, and that cross can be something, it's quite fashionable today. It says something. You don't know exactly what it says. Sometimes I'll see people wearing a cross and I'll just ask them, well, what does that cross mean to you? It's kind of an invitation. And I don't know, it's cool. It's like when you people see people wearing a sports shirt, like, hey, are you a fan? No, I got this on sale uh, at the secondhand store. But for some people, it does mean something, right? Even for us, though, thousands of years afterwards, we may not have a sense of what the cross means. When Paul comes and begins to talk about life uh, in cruciform style, and really Christ who was crucified, for the group of people gathered together, automatically something would come to mind. And for us who are kind of distanced, we may not have a good sense of what that is. Let, let me read just a brief description D.A. Carson gives. He's an a author and professor out of Chicago, um, well-studied. He says this, what would you think if a woman came to work wearing earrings stamped with an image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb dropped over Hiroshima? What would you think of a church building adorned with a fresco of the massed graves at Auschwitz? Both visions are grotesque. They're not only intrinsically abhorrent, but they are shocking because of powerful cultural associations. The same sort of shocked horror was associated with cross and crucifixion in the first century. Apart from the emperor's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be put to death by this means. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, aliens, barbarians, and many thought it was not something to be talked about in polite company. Quite apart from the wretched torture inflicted on those who were executed by hanging from a cross, the cultural associations conjured up images of evil, corruption, and abysmal rejection. So maybe not as many people would be wearing the cross 
today if that is the image that they knew was coming as a result of it. But for Paul, in his day, that's what it would communicate. So if we were to go back and read this again, as we begin unpacking this, you would see how significant it is that he's talking about the impact of the cross and the power that it has back at this time as well as it does for us in our day. Not so much of a fashion statement then. And that helps frame a better understanding of our passage. The death of Jesus on the cross as the power and the wisdom of God does not make sense unless in God's wisdom and power he gives us insight and an experience toward that end. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And you see Paul kind of doing a dividing line in the sand here, saying, here's the cross and its message. And on one line you have people who consider it foolishness. And on the other side, for those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. And it's almost like Paul is going to say, which side are you on? There's the dividing line. When you look at the cross and its message, which we'll talk about what that is, does it come across as foolishness or does the very wisdom and power of God? And how does it even happen? Why won't some people cross that line, no pun intended, to understanding that it is the wisdom and the power of God? And Paul starts talking about this in, in this passage He'd already, he'd already commented on that. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He's using that language again of those who have been called. Remember from the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the called out ones, the ecclesia. Paul himself was called as an apostle. And then by virtue of his declaration of what Christ has done, he's calling others to follow in that way. And if you respond, it's because God has opened your eyes to the reality of what is being preached. And you're on this side of the line that says that's the power and the wisdom of God. But not everybody gets there. Some people in his day demand that God show up according to their own designs. Jews demand a miraculous sign. It's a stumbling block for them. If you know the ministry of Jesus, he actually showed the Jews quite a few miraculous signs. And my guess is today, if we had somebody in a wheelchair and you knew for a fact that they had been paralyzed since birth and I prayed over them and I said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And they got up and they started doing the Harlem Shuffle or something like that, you, you might be like, whoa, that's some real stuff. Well, if you open up your Bible, Jesus did that quite a bit, but not everybody replied in the same way. They either gave explanations for it or weren't convinced or needed to see more, and Jesus said, blessed are you who've never seen but still believe. Because God's done something. He's opened up your eyes when he prays for the Ephesian church. He says, I pray you'd have power to grasp. Not just the dimensions of God's love, but the reality of its application to you. That is a divine action that is being done. And God has opened up our eyes to something. How many of you like modern art? Some people look like they're unwilling to admit it. 
<laughs> a little bit, like maybe something, kind of, kind of like it. So you can appreciate it perhaps more than I. I'm guessing for a handful of you, if you go to a modern art museum, you're looking at that and you're like, what? <laughs> maybe you see a price tag, right? It's very expensive, thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and you're thinking, my child could do this. Does, does anybody have that thought? But besides me, I mean, it's like somebody just closed their eyes, took a bunch of paint and went boop and said, wow, that is brilliant, right? And for some of us, we look at that and think, I don't get it. How in the world could this mean anything to anybody? And you might be next to somebody who says, look at that. I want that in my collection. I've got to have that. The, the brilliance of the shading and the light and, and the strokes. And you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> What's the difference? It's the same piece of art. And for one person, when they look at it, they see the profound depth of somebody's genius. And others of us think, it should go on a refrigerator somewhere. <laughs> and Paul's kind of saying the cross is a little bit like that. When, when you see this symbol and you understand God saying, there is my wisdom and power, a lot of people look at it and think, I'm not convinced. Show me something a little bit more than that. And the Jews did that. Show me more signs. And in fact, the Jews were looking for Jesus. But what they were looking for was a suffering servant. No, actually, that's not what they were looking for, is it? They were looking for a victorious, conquering king who would raise them up out of their shackles and shambles and make them the greatest kingdom ever so they could crush their opponents. Don't we all sort of want that? I'm going back to football again. Who's your favorite team? Don't you want to see them crush anybody, especially somebody from the SEC? <laughs> Why do we want that? I mean, there's something inherent inside of us that wants victory. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'm here, I'm the Messiah, the anointed one. I'm going to the cross. You know, Peter, when he heard that, said, no way. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Peter's like, wait a second, I do have in mind the things of God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed king. Yes, and I'll seal it by dying on the cross. Don't tempt me with your number one ratings. Because God's way is different. It's Christocentric and cruciform. That's the power and the wisdom of God. Jews, they wanted miraculous signs. The Greeks, they wanted wisdom. They had their philosophy. They had their rationalization. They didn't, couldn't imagine a God who, who, who would put on human emotion. It was impossible for them. So when, G, when Jesus is presented and Paul comes and says, here he is, God has arrived on the scene in the person of Christ, and he died on a cross and suffered. It wasn't enough for them. They didn't see power and wisdom. They saw foolishness. So for each of them, it was a different kind of stumbling block. There was something that got in the way, anything that is a barrier to God. And Paul, when he comes to these main cultures in the city of Corinth, you had the Jewish culture, you had the Greek culture, all living together, he says, this cross, this thing I hold dear, the, the wisdom and the power of God on full display. 
It's a stumbling block for some of you because you're looking for something different. It's right here for you. But you've convinced yourself that there's a better way, a different way. And from the beginning, this is what happens in the Bible. When God said, here is the beautiful life in front of you and Adam and Eve in their folly, think they're pursuing wisdom, right? What was the temptation? You'll know the difference between good and evil. That sounds wise. And God's wisdom said, that's going to, that's fire that will burn you. And just like children, they said, well, let's play with it anyway. And we experience the ravages of sin. And one of those ravages is we've got a better way to fix the problem. Right after this happens in Genesis chapter 3, it's the story of man making a better way, finding a better way. Let's build up to the heavens and show how awesome we are. Look how incredible our economy is. And God comes and confuses. He says, that's not the right way. That's not the way of humility. It's not the way of the cross. I'm going to send one one day who will show you the way. My wisdom and power on full display in the person of Christ on the cross. And there it is. But some look and say, that's not enough. Foolishness. Anything raised as a barrier to be open, not just to the reality of God, but to the beauty and the power of the cross. And you know, that stumbling block, if we talk about this dividing line, might be initially like, I, I believe, I follow Christ. I see the wisdom and the power. But then even when you start on that journey, there's new stumbling blocks that arise. And Paul is beginning to point them back to the initial thing to say, don't let those be stumbling blocks anymore. Let's go back to the cross. You've begun to create these factions and say, we've got it figured out, and you don't. I follow this person, and you're not as good as that other person. And he says, go back to the cross. That's foolishness. It's the leveling ground. The cross sucks all the superiority out of us. And once we start feeling it again, we say, go back to the cross. You know, that was... As I've said before, Staupitz to Luther. Luther struggled all the time with, have I done enough good to be right before God? And Staupitz said, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Luther comes again. I just, look at the cross, dude. I doubt he used that language. But he probably kept saying it. Just look again at the cross. Look at it. Because that's the only hope that you have. Not only entering the kingdom, but continuing in it. And when you have that, that reality Baked into your DNA then, it does take out any sense of, I'm better than you are. And unfortunately, the church struggles with that, right? The beautiful, messy bride of Christ. Paul is bringing them back again and again to the cross. And he had that taken out of him as well. He, ha he had the sense that I could be superior to others. And God took care of it in him. As we'll see. Each one of you has probably a stumbling block. Either even to initially saying, I don't believe it, I'm not going to go that way, or into trusting God more with that. When, when health is a crisis, when a child is struggling, when the job is not going according to plan, when your teams are failing you left and right, where's your real trust? And I, I, I would contend that 
uh, and this is, this is nothing new. You've heard this before, and I know I have a few students here as well that I teach a worldview class to, and I would contend that no matter where you go in the world, there's three questions everybody is trying to find the answer to, no matter what it is. It's, it's these three things. How did we get here? What went wrong, and how do we fix it? Each one of us is trying to make sense of the world. We all are. And, and even if you're somebody who's an evolutionist, okay, you have, a, a, you have a, an explanation for how we got here. Random, enough time, enough random processes, and you have this. You have, you have also a, a sense of what went wrong well, or what's going wrong. Genetic mutations, right? Things we're trying to weed out. Over time, enough evolution processes are getting better. And if you're weak, you won't survive. So over time, only the strong survive. And you have an idea, too, of not only how you fix it, uh, what went wrong, but how do you fix it? Yeah, natural selection. You're moving toward perfection. We're all going in that direction in some way. But all of these storylines are variations of the same thing, no matter what it is, whether you're, you have a Muslim background, a, a Hindu background, you're a secular atheist, you're, you're an agnostic, or you're a Christian. And Paul says that the Bible tells us how things actually are. How did we get here? God created us. What went wrong? Sin entered the world and everything got messed up. How do we fix it? We can't. We desperately need somebody else to do it for us. And God says, I've got the answer in the person of Christ. And that does not look very wise because he shows up, humbles himself as a man, and dies on a cross. And he says, that's the solution. That's it. Here's a, here's a quote. Perhaps you've heard me read this before. Again, if you're a student. Just to give kind of context for what this might look like for somebody else. As an American atheist at the dawn of the 20th century, Margaret Sanger believed that man must save himself and Darwin showed the way. In order for society to become perfect, she thought, the human race would have to rid itself of all its unfit members. Sanger began by saying that unfit people, people she called human weeds, should not be allowed to reproduce. The poor, the uneducated, the mentally handicapped, and anyone who happened to belong to the wrong race were hopelessly diluting the stock of humanity and had to be stopped. People who did not believe this were, her quote, benign imbeciles who encouraged the defective and diseased elements of humanity in their reckless and irresponsible swarming and spawning. This spawning had to cease so that the fit members of society could create a generation of more highly evolved humans who would in turn create even more highly evolved humans. By allowing only the fit to reproduce, you could ensure that the world would progress toward perfection. So that's Margaret Sanger's vision of a perfect society and how you get there. Weed people out who are weak. Not everybody has that perspective who's obviously embracing that worldview, but this was hers. 
And every, everybody else, everybody creates their own construct. There are plenty of people, for example, who are, in, who are Christians who might sound a little bit like that if they're not Christocentric and cruciform. That's human wisdom. God's wisdom's a little bit different, isn't it? I mean, you could kind of become like superior and say, yeah, look at me, I'm a Christian. That person doesn't know anything. But Paul doesn't give you space for that because he reminds everybody where they came from. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Do you feel like you don't deserve God's love? Like you're, you're full of shame, lowly, despised? You are much closer to the kingdom than somebody who feels like they deserve it. So if you feel worthless today, guess what? <laughs> All it takes is a, a, okay, Lord, I know I'm, I feel worthless. And he says, look at the cross. You're of infinite value. If you don't sense God's need, why would you go to him? You've got your own way. And God, God, God in his wisdom says, how's that working for you? And maybe there's one day when there will be no more chances to cross that line in the sand. See, Paul doesn't give us room for feeling superior or feeling better than. He reminds them, and us as well, we really came from nothing. We don't contribute to the equation except that humble yes, Lord, that we all have to say. He's called us. He's calling us. Have we responded? God's wisdom and his power that shows us again and again God can reach anyone. D.A. Carson, since started off with a quote that was shocking, says this about that reality. This is breathtaking. God has not arranged things so that the foolishness of the gospel saves those who have IQs in excess of 130. Where would that leave the rest of us? Although I have to say I suspect Carson might be in that category. <laughs> Nor does the foolishness of what is preached transform the young, the beautiful, the extroverts, the educated, the wealthy, the healthy, the upright. Where would that leave the old, the ugly, the introverts, the illiterate, the poor, the sick, the perverse? The gods of the rich are not gentle with those the rich dismiss as poor. The gods of the wise are not kind to those the wise reject as stupid. The gods of the social elite are not patient with outcasts. And thus God quietly and effectively banishes the wisdom of our culture as utter folly. It's not that Paul isn't saying, throw aside all rationality. Just, just embrace blindly this thing we call faith and, and the Christ and the cross. Paul labored a long time. He was a very educated individual. He went into synagogues, reasoned with people. Even in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, because this is true... 
I want to take stock of the culture around me and, and craft my message in a way that touches them. So what he says to the Athenians is slightly different than how he catches it to the Corinthians. And he has this person going with him, make this cultural accommodation, and this one not doing it because he's thinking, how do I remove stumbling blocks? There are reasons, there are constructs for believing in faith, not just in generally, but in Christianity specifically. But the reality is, no matter how many of those are presented, until God gives you insight and wisdom, it just looks like foolishness and folly. Paul himself knew that. The cross, though he was highly intelligent and extremely well-trained, drained him of any sense of superiority. You probably know this passage. I mean, think about Paul here. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, right? He was a religious. He, he followed everything to the law of the people of Israel. He had the right ethnic makeup. In fact, even within Israel, you know, there's kind of this scale of how awesome are you in this select group of individual people who are awesome. And he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee is for zeal, persecuting the church. Nobody could doubt his education, his ethnicity, his, his heart for truth and what's right. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But all those things, whatever was to my profit, I consider it a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Just rubbish, he says. It's like, like yesterday's trash. Rumpke, come on, gather all my accomplishments. They're piling out there on the corner. And that's what it's like compared to what? Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, now not doing a bunch of good things and then being okay with God, but actually trusting that I can't because this comes through faith in Christ. He's Christocentric. It's all about Christ, what he's done, not what I've done. That righteousness comes from God. It's by faith. All I do is believe. Christ, you've done all that. And so he says, when that's true, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. I had a Welsh preaching pastor who said, you Americans, you all want to know the power of the resurrection. I have no idea if that's a Welsh accent <laughs> at all. But what about the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings? He said, you don't like that so much. But that's what Paul was. See, he was not just Christocentric. He was cruciform. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his death. Becoming like his death, dying to self. Because it's not about me. If this is the case, how can there be factions? How can we be so self-protective? How can we be so self-centered? Remember last week we said they're like little kids and the first word we learn is mine. Me. Mine. And Paul said, look at the cross. 
There's no room for that. It takes out all our sense of superiority, even our sense of I deserve fill in the blank. And Paul says, I'm not going to, how can I, I can't do that if I know the gospel. If, if I'm going to live this Christocentric, cruciform life, the cross empties me of such nonsense and human foolishness and unleashes a divine power that turns self-serving thoughts into self-sacrificing ones. There is no explanation for that except God's wisdom and power. You have somebody so consumed with self, that's me on display today, saying it's not about me anymore. It's Christ's power in me loving you and sacrificing for you. Not because of what I get, but because that's, that's what the Christocentric, cruciform life looks like. That's God's wisdom and power, me and nobody, who God says, I'm taking you, I'm calling you, I'm going to make you mine for my kingdom. And the greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. That's God's wisdom. That's God's power. And we'll never know that until we get back to the cross. It's leveling ground. Look at how it shapes Paul's own preaching. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. This guy was actually very educated. And he had suffered a lot of things already. But what, what undoes him the most when he comes with most weakness and trembling is when he opens up God's word. And he says, I'm going to preach God's wisdom and power to you. And I am scared to death because I don't want to mistreat it. I don't want you to hear something that's not true. I, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm desperate for you to get this. No, there's, not, there's no smoke machines. There's no vending machines. There's not a, a slick kids ministry going on here too. He's opening up God's word and giving them the truth. And he says that terrifies me. And one of the reasons might be because he could hide behind all of his accolades before and say, here I am, a person who knows everything. I'm going to educate you. Sit down and listen. And what he's preaching is like, I have nothing to offer you. God stripped me of all my self-confidence. And all I have left is Christ. And that's actually the power. And that's what he says. My message and my preaching were not wise, with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So you don't have the, you don't have the luxury of anymore of saying like, oh, I follow Following the blank. I follow Tim Keller. I follow Brian Tome. Not many people saying I follow Mark Champagne. And that's good. You shouldn't. And Paul said that. I heard I follow Paul. It tore him apart. No, 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 no. It's about Christ. I have no power to convey to you in and of myself. I can barely function through a course of a day. But the power and the wisdom of God is the cross has the power. It's not me, but it's Christ in me. Any hope I have of moving on or articulating something in a way where you go, aha, that's Christ. That's his spirit. That's his power at work. And your faith cannot rest on men's wisdom ultimately, but only on God's power, period. 
And Paul says, if you don't get that all in the beginning, everything I say here isn't going to make sense. And frankly, the reason you're having these problems is because you don't get this. So he gets back to the beginning, back to God's power, the Spirit's power, the cross, the cruciform life. It's not eloquence and wisdom, but as he comes with weakness and fear, he wants them to see it's about God's power. And that's it. That's the wisdom. That's the power of God. The cross, absolute foolishness. But do you see the wisdom in that? Do you see the folly of us aligning with human constructs and even anybody you think is a great person? That person, if they're great at all, it's only because Christ has been at work in their lives. Like I said about my best man who gave me a glowing review at our wedding and said, I'm not really talking about Mark, I'm talking about Christ. You know, I felt that small afterwards. And they said, but it's because Mark knows Christ that some of those things are true of him as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. And you know, if there's any demonstration of that at all, it's in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate here. I mean, Christ who, this is the wisdom and the power of God, knowing we need the sustaining grace to going on because we will forget this message very quickly, within the next 10 seconds perhaps. So he says, here's a constant reminder of what I did, that I died on the cross, and this is the pathway. This, this is the answer to those questions. How did we get here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? I've done it. My body was given for you. My blood was shed for you so that you could know Christ and know that you're called out to walk as sanctified ones in his ways. And we're called together as brothers and sisters. We're baked together, one loaf as it were. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, you've, missed, you've again, you're, you're missing the message of the table itself. So let us not do that. Let us find this a leveling ground, a place of forgiveness, a place of healing as we take in the body of Christ. Who can come to this table? Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus. Anybody who knows the answers to the questions is, how do we get here? God made us. What went wrong? We sinned and I'm a great sinner also. How do I fix it? Can't, except for faith in Christ. You know those answers? Come feast. <laughs> The way that we do it is we come up, we gather the elements. You can see there's some options up here as well. Um, if you want to take, there's, we just have grape juice uh, here, but some bread and then also the prepackaged items as well. And take it back to your seat. Spend some time praying, thinking, praying, uh, confessing, and receiving God's forgiveness. And we'll take it all together as one. I'll, I'll lead us in that so you'll know when to take it to demonstrate our unity.